This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor here at the Peninsula Pulse, and today we're going to talk about the universe. I am not very well equipped to talk about the universe, but we're fortunate enough to get somebody on here who can. If you want to see someone excited about the stars or excited about science, you should follow Heidi Hamill on Twitter. That's at HB Hamill. Heidi is a NASA interdisciplinary scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope and the Vice President of Science at the Association of Universities for Research in Astronomy, or AURA. She joined us in December of 2021 to talk about the potential of what was then the about-to-launch $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope. And she has been kind enough to spare a few minutes of time today to join us and talk to us about how it's working and what they're discovering and what what's exciting about it. So, Heidi, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Last time we talked, we were about 10 days from the telescope launching, and it had just recently been delayed on the launch before. So there was a ton of nervousness. There was a ton of, is this going to work? Are we going to get this launch into space? And is it going to unfold? Is everything going to go correctly? And if it doesn't, like, what does that mean for space research and and discovery in the future, because this is kind of the biggest, most expensive risk we've ever taken, right? Well, certainly for astrophysics, yeah, this is uh, the biggest, most ambitious, and most expensive telescope that NASA has ever built. So a lot was on the line, and tell us how it's going one year later. Well, the good news is that everything is going great, and the better news is that it's even going better than we anticipated. <laughs> So we are in the astrophysics and astronomy community. We are just, you know, over the moon to use an astronomical <laughs> express. Um, no, the launch took place on Christmas Day in 2021, and it was on an Ariane 5 rocket. And the Ariane 5 put JWST into a nearly perfect trajectory to send it to its uh, designated place which is placed about a million miles away from Earth, called the Sun-Earth-Lagrange 2-point, and that's where it is now. And along the path, it took a month to get there, but it unfolded and opened up and uh, just deployed its sun shield and set up its mirrors, and everything worked perfectly. So when we got there, about a month later, we went into a six-month period of checking everything out, aligning all the mirrors. This telescope, its main surface of collection is, is not one mirror, but 18 mirrors that all work together to act as one mirror. They all had to be aligned to exquisite precision. We're talking about sort of the precision the size of a human hair, over <laughs> six and a half meters. So it's huge. And we also had to check out all the instruments to make sure they were working. And it all just went like clockwork. I had a to-do list that I was checking off over the course of the month. And then we had another sort of a, a another chart that we were following over the six months of this commissioning period. And everything just, just kept checking them off one by one. And, and finally, we were done. And we looked, you know, at, at the sensitivity. It's better than our requirements. 
We looked at how sharp the images were, what we in astronomy call the point spread function. It was better than the requirements. Everything is better, a little bit better than the requirements. There are a few things that were at the requirement level, but almost everything is a little bit better. So we have a fantastic tool up there. And the science has just been flowing nonstop since we started in July of last year. It's just been uh, quite a wild ride for us. It is just remarkable, having talked to you before this happened and talked to others and, and read a lot about this, it's just remarkable that it all worked. And I just can't imagine, like, as you're going through and you're checking off these boxes, it's, it's one of those where you almost have to expect something to go wrong, right? So you might be like, are we, are, is this actually right? Is this actually happening? <laughs> and it had to be yeah. just a crazy yeah, yeah. R- range of emotions. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you just kept wondering, uh, you know, all right, well, that all went so well, but, like, does that mean the next thing won't work? It's really, truly a testament to the 20,000 engineers scientists and technicians who worked on this telescope on the ground beforehand, checking everything and rechecking it and running tests. And not all the tests went well on the ground, which is good because it means you found the things that were not going to work in space and fixed them. Right. And by golly, once we got it up there, <laughs> it all worked. <laughs> so it's, a, you know, like I said, you know, kudos to the teams who built this, to the engineers and everybody. It's fabulous. So now, now it's all about the science that we're, we're doing with this telescope. Yeah. So in July, the first images, so this thing's up there for six plus months before you start getting the first major images back from it. When those came back, what were your first impressions at what you were seeing? Some of the first images we got were some engineering data. And one of the engineering targets was the planet Jupiter. And that's the sort of thing I study, the solar system. They were using Jupiter as an engineering target because it's really bright and it moves in the sky. And so they were trying to test how close it could move to one of their guide stars that we used to, to point the telescope to see if it would mess anything up. So even when we saw this engineering data, we knew that something special was going on with the telescope in, in a positive way because they were just so crisp, so clear. When those first real science color images came down, they were new for me as well as everybody. There was a, a special team at the Space Telescope Science Institute who picked out targets for those early release observations. So like the beautiful cosmic cliffs that many of the listeners probably have seen, sort of a a beautiful orange undulating landscape with a, a dark blue sky over it. I saw that for the first time Along with everybody else, uh, we were at a big meeting in Sweden of people who were using Hubble and hoped to use JWST when they did the big release. And, and when these images just showed up, we just were all, you could hear people sort of sighing and going, wow. And <laughs> you could look around and people's mouths were hanging open. <laughs> they were just, it was so beautiful. And there's actually deep science in those images as well. And the other thing I want to share with you People in the public are mostly captured by the images that come from these fantastic telescopes mm-hmm. like, like Hubble and JWST. But these telescopes do something else that's even more powerful than the images. They take the light from an object like, say, a galaxy, and they spread the light out into its constituent colors. 
And then they look at what colors are extra bright or what colors are a little faded compared to the surroundings. And that process of, of spreading the light out is what we call spectroscopy. And by looking at the light itself, the specific colors of light from an object like a galaxy, you actually can learn about the chemistry in the galaxy. Wow. And you can learn about temperatures of the objects in the galaxy and about the dynamics in the galaxy. So spectroscopy is this incredibly powerful tool that astronomers use to probe the universe. And so <laughs> the images were so awesome. But when, when the first spectra appeared which are these what to most um, non-astronomers just look like squiggly lines. But to astronomers, they are like the heart and soul of our science. Hmm. When the spectra, they were so clean, so beautiful, so crisp that people just were losing their minds. They were like, holy smokes, look at that. Oh my goodness, this is amazing spectroscopy. <laughs> and and all today, that, that happens today, even now that we're like a year away from launch, we're, we're fully six months into it. We were at a meeting recently called The First Science from JWST. This meeting was held just in December, so a few months ago. And some people put up spectra of things like some of the most distant galaxies in the universe. They're showing these spectra. And people in the audience would gasp. They would be like, oh, Lord, look at that. You know, it was that level of excitement is still associated with the data coming from JWST. And I have the feeling it's going to be like that for quite a number of years. <laughs> um, we're in honeymoon phase where it's all, it's all so new and so amazing and really opening up these windows that, you know, we, we have been talking for years. I mean, I've been working on the project for 25 years, right? <laughs> Formally for NASA for 20. And we knew it would be good. But it's one thing to know it's going to be good and have a model, right, of predicting what you're going to see. It's another thing for this data to come down and you're looking at it going, I can't. It, it, it's so good. So as you can tell, uh, we're very excited about <laughs> about what we're seeing. That's what I, I love about when I get a chance to talk to you, but also listening to you on other podcasts and in interviews, is you are so good at translating these this very complicated science that's really outside the realm of most people's brain space, right? And putting it into yeah. a framework that we can understand. And I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think of it like the way you talk about it and what I read from other scientists who have written about this and written about what they're seeing or given interviews, it's the way that people react watching a, a sporting event. Like if, you know, I'm in Green Bay Packers country, my sister's out in Baltimore Ravens country. This is like your sports team doing something amazing, the way that you hear people react to this. Absolutely. It's like, touchdown! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except, you know, uh, well, it, it is analogous in that professional sports players, I mean, they're not born, you know, a, a pro football player. They train and they practice practice and they work hard at it. And I think people, you know, sometimes don't appreciate, you know, that to get a, a telescope like this up there and working, it, it took the work of thousands of engineers and scientists working at the peak of their game to really produce something that had never existed before, you know? So yeah, it's up there and it's just 
send them back this data. It's working around the clock now. And so there's a, a Twitter bot <laughs> called JWST OBS. And I follow it, and it's just amazing because, like, every hour we're looking at something new. We're looking at a galaxy, or we're looking at an asteroid, or we're looking at some star formation region, or we're looking at the, you know, the planet Uranus. We just took a whole bunch of Uranus data. So uh, it's pretty exciting. Well, I think, you know, you talk about it working around the clock, and one of the interesting things I read about was how with the Hubble, there have been periods where there weren't, like, approved projects where people were actually using it. And one of the real efforts with James Webb was to make sure this thing was booked so for its usable lifespan, you were getting as much science coming out of this as possible. So I actually read that it's actually kind of like double booked so that if some project falls by the wayside, you've got another one to plug in. Oh, by the wayside. They do try to have enough projects so that there's never downtime on the telescope. And we were actually... We figured this out with Hubble now that it's been operating for 32 years. We've gotten to the point where there's very little downtime on Hubble as well, almost none. Mm. The JWST was designed that way from the get-go to have the efficiency of the telescope be extraordinarily high. And so programs that don't get done right away, they will get done eventually. So if your program is approved, if you're selected to get time on the telescope, you will get that time. It's just you may not get it right away. Especially right now when there's so many programs from the the guaranteed time programs and we had a program called the early release science programs, which were designed to really demonstrate the abilities of JWST and make all of that public right away so that the broad astronomical community would have access to the data and understand for themselves and for their own applications what JWST would do. So all of that stuff is happening right now. Literally at this moment, we are a few days away from the deadline for the cycle two proposals. This is next year's observing proposals. So astronomers all over the world are writing proposals to use this tool that we now know is so fantastic. So I anticipate there will be a lot of requests um, to use James Webb Space Telescope in the coming year. The difference between these projects, if if I understand this correctly, or, or you just maybe I'll, I'll ask it as a question because I don't understand. <laughs> um, but one project, they may want to point it at a different spot, right? Like that's kind of somebody gets some time on that telescope and they're looking for specific photos for specific things they're trying to research. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Um, the power of a facility like JWST or Hubble is their general purpose astrophysics tools. And so we can use them to study galaxies, to study stars, to study planets, to basically just anything that's out there in the sky and that's visible to the telescope, it can be studied. But we have to decide what is the most important science to Mm. be done. And so there's a very rigorous process by which all these different proposals are evaluated by a panel of peers, and they're sorted into their specialities. So there are people who study galaxies They'll have a panel that will review all of the requests to study galaxies with JWST and decide which are the best scientific uses of this telescope, which don't need the telescope at all, so they'll just not accept those. Mm. And then they'll debate over sort of the in-between. And they do that for, you know, galaxies, for star formation, for the solar system, for exoplanets. 
And that way, we really guarantee that we're using this telescope to do the best science that can be done. And by the way, all those proposals are being written in a style that they are anonymous. Hmm. And so the people reviewing them don't know who is proposing. And we do that so that we eliminate bias in our selection. So it isn't just the super famous guys from, you know, University X who are well-known experts. We don't just give the time to them. We give it to whoever writes the best proposal. Hmm. And once we see that style, as we call dual anonymous, we found that a lot of young people were getting time on the telescope that in the past they may not have been able to get time because their names weren't known or they weren't from a famous institution. So it's really been a a great way to democratize the use of the telescope and really get the best science. And you've talked about that in the past. I don't know if I read this or the last time we spoke, but just about the value in getting those new minds on it. It's not like you talked about, you've been working on this for 30 years and you're so excited about it. But the real thing is those people who are going to have the next 30 years to be working on this and how, how do you get them engaged? How do you get them time on it to pursue different ideas than maybe older or more experienced people maybe get stuck in one zone, these people have the new ideas. Yeah, that's exactly right. We make a big effort to ensure that everybody knows how to write the proposals, knows how to calculate exposure times, and you know has all the tools at hand so they can write the best possible proposals. And so, so they do. And also, I wanted to share that all the data that gets taken does get put into an archive. And eventually, all of that data is available to anybody. That turns out to be very important. We have found that for the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been up taking data for 32 years now, we're finding now that there are great science papers that are just using data from the archive. They aren't Mm -hmm. necessarily using brand new observations. And so that way, our our telescope is far more powerful than than just the observations you make every day. Mm. You build up this database of knowledge about the universe that sticks around and other people can then delve into it and learn new things that the original people who proposed those observations may not have thought of when they took the data. But years later, or even decades later, people can go back and access the data again and learn new things about that. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. How long do we expect the James Webb to be usable by us? So that's a great question. When we talked last, before launch, you, I'm sure you asked me that question. And what I said then was the nominal lifetime is five years, and we hope to have enough fuel to keep going for 10 years. The good news is that fabulous trajectory that the Ariane 5 rocket put us on allowed us to conserve fuel. We didn't Mm. need to use fuel to get us into the right position to get to our L2 location. And we now have enough fuel 
to last 20 years. Wow. And now, I'm not going to promise that the telescope will last 20 years right. or that the equipment will last 20 years. But what had been our life-limiting factor was the hydrazine fuel no longer is the life-limiting factor. We may be going for 20 years strong with JWST, and that's so exciting. Well, yeah, if everything else lasts. And I know I did read that in June it was one of the mirrors, I think, was hit by what was described as a micrometeor, which... By micro, I think I read that it was like maybe the size of a grain of sand. Yeah, a micrometeoroid. Yeah, we, in fact, uh, the engineering teams who designed JWST thought carefully about the space environment, and they knew that over five, ten, or more years that the mirrors would get struck by micrometeoroids. And so that was always part of the planning. So when we talked about the sensitivities and the qualities of the instruments and the telescope, we were really designing it so that after 10 years, after being hit by micrometeoroids for 10 years, it would still be performing at a level, not as perfect as what it started, but still really good. Hmm. So I think what the, the reason that story caught everybody's attention was there had already been seven other micrometeoroid strikes prior to the one that happened in May of last year. But they were all super tiny and right within sort of the, the realm of what was predicted. And the one in May was a moderately large one, large enough that it made a, a detectable distortion in the shape of the particular mirror segment that it hit. Now, it's not larger than had been predicted. We had predicted that every year there was likely to be a micrometeoroid strike of such a size. Mm. What surprised people was that it happened almost right away after <laughs> we were in orbit. And that made everybody nervous. But people who study statistics know that the whole point of statistics is that you can't predict when things will happen. And so just getting one soon, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a whole lot more big ones. It just means yeah. that the one of the year happens earlier in the year rather than later in the year. Mm. And you know, that that logic has held. <laughs> Statistics <laughs> works. We've had quite a few more small meteor strikes, micro-meteoroid strikes, <laughs> but we have not had another large one of that size. And we are now, you know, moving into, we're just a year past launch. So that was our one of the year for the first year. <laughs> what is the, um, that begs the question, like, what if there's a larger meteorite or comet or, I mean, is there a risk of something else hitting it? And is there any, like, fail-safe for that? Or is this just just, we're in space now. Well, at some level, the answer is we're in space now. But we are um, being very thoughtful. Um, once we had that early micrometeoroid strike, the engineering teams did a lot of thinking, a lot of calculations, a lot of study. And they recommended that when we are uh, looking, there, there are certain directions when you are looking, you are more likely to be hit by micrometeoroids just because of the motion of the spacecraft. And so they recommended that we try to avoid looking in the upstream direction, if you will, and look in other directions preferentially from the, the direction of motion. And so that is now part of the planning process when people are requesting to look at certain galaxies or certain star clusters, we look at where they are in the sky and we try to time it so we aren't looking at it when they're upstream mm. of the direction of the telescope motion. Now, sometimes we, we don't have a choice. If we're looking, say, at a, a planet or an asteroid or an exoplanet that's going to transit at a specific time, 
we have to look at it when it is happening. And so we've accepted that there is some risk, but by generally avoiding the upstream motion, we're trying to minimize those risks. And, you know, we don't really worry so much about the big things because, you know, we are tracking a lot of that stuff already. We have surveys that are studying the skies. So we we look for asteroids and comets all the time and we we track them Mm. so it's really the dust that that we worry about (laughs) the small stuff (laughs) the dust small stuff that we can't see yeah one final thing for you you the other day shared a a video of scientist i think stephanie malam was her name talking about the fact that hubble really changed our understanding of the universe and she talks about the fields of science that were kind of created from the hubble and then with excitement, she's talking about, we don't know what's going to come from the James Webb. We don't know what yet, what incredible new understanding that will change our our whole paradigm and of how we think about ourselves within the context of the universe and all these other things with science discoveries. So I am a little curious, what do you, do you have like a hope for what you think we might, maybe, maybe there's some question that we might be able to answer at some point using the James Webb or some discovery that you think this could help us get toward? Do you have like one big hope that you have in mind? with James Webb uh, Space Telescope, we're starting to see that some of the very earliest galaxies may be a little bit brighter and more active and more well-formed than we had anticipated. We're not sure yet because we're, we're just at the very beginning of the studies, but there's a hint that the earliest universe may have been a, a little bit different than our current models and thinking were telling us prior to to launch. That would be really interesting if true, because that could set us into a new direction of understanding how our universe came to be. And that has ripple effects, not only for the distant universe, but all the way through to where we live today. (laughs) If there's some underlying physics that we don't have exactly quite right yet, that really changes our understanding of how our whole universe came to be, including our planet, including us. So that that's potentially really interesting. I'll also share that we are right now with James Webb still doing all the work that we planned to do with it. All right. You know, that we set out, you know, my team who's working on studying the solar system is working on projects that I laid out 20 years ago. I knew that I needed this telescope to address those particular questions. We're not yet cracking open these brand new windows of discovery yet, but that's going to come. And given how powerful JWSC has turned out to be, it could be next year. It could be the year after. It could be very soon. But hmm. I, I do believe that when we, when we are at the other end of the lifetime of, of JWST and we look back, we're going to say, yeah, we, we answered the questions we set out to answer, but here's all the stuff that we didn't even know to ask. Here's our new questions. <laughs> here's our new questions. And we're already starting to think about the next generation of large telescope. I mean, one of the huge questions that's out there in the universe is, are we alone? Are we the only life in the universe? JWST, if we're lucky, may be able to shed light on that topic, but it wasn't designed to answer that question. It's, hmm. it's really not quite large enough, and the wavelengths are really tuned for the deep universe, not for the local neighborhood. By local neighborhood, I mean the local galactic neighborhood, <laughs> this arm of the galaxy that we live in. 
So we're already now starting to think about the next giant space telescope that we want to build that maybe will answer that question. It's called hmm. Habitable Worlds Observatory. And, uh, you know, it's it, maybe it's amazing for, for members of the public to sort of think, would you just launch JWST? Why are you thinking about the next one? Well, the answer is it, it might take us a decade or a decade and a half to get that thing up there. Now is the time to start. We don't want to wait. Well, I think you told me that you started work on or, or design started and ideas started for the James Webb pretty much right when we launched the Hubble. That's 32 years. So you have to start now. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So we have dreams. And JWST, I, I tell my team this all the time. Whenever they show me new data from some solar system object that we, we've planned, and I tell them, you guys are fulfilling my dream. It is amazing to see. And so now we're dreaming the next dreams, too. So <laughs> it's, it's a really fun time to be an astronomer right now. I'll just say that. Well, to our listeners, if you haven't looked and haven't seen some of the photos from the James Webb yet, definitely look that up. I mean, there's there's like Heidi said, there's a, the Twitter feed. There's a, a lot of articles out there now that show some of these just stunning photos. So I, I really encourage you, even if you're not like someone who's really into space and the stars, they're just beautiful to look at. But if you dig deeper, there's so much more to them. And then Heidi, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you taking some time to, to join us and, and take this thing that's so big and make it accessible to us that are so small here on the, on the planet Earth. And thank you so much for letting me talk about it. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.